Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a fit-for-work podcast where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I am your host, Curtis Kopotic, and I am joined by my co-host, Amber Brown. And today we are going to be talking to Frank Alvarez. Frank is a lawyer with Jackson Lewis and is the founder and leader of the firm's Disability Leave and Health Management Practice Group. For the next two episodes, Frank will break down the legal aspects of pre-employment testing for us. So Frank, one of the first questions I thought it'd be great to start off with is to help our audience gain a perspective and get some background on the company, the law firm that you work for, Jackson Lewis, and a little bit about yourself and how it pertains to pre-employment testing. Okay, I'd be happy to do that, Curtis. So I am an employment lawyer with a large national workplace law firm called Jackson Lewis. Jackson Lewis is a law firm that just represents management in a whole variety of workplace law issues. We started as a firm in 1958, primarily as a traditional labor firm, and we've evolved into a full-range workplace law firm. Most of our work is litigation, but a very sizable portion of what we do is preventive work of the nature that we'll be talking today. And I found my way into this area of the law. Some people may think that workplace law is a specialty unto itself, and it is, but there's lots of other sub-niche levels of specialty. And I found my way into one. Actually, on the day I was uh, taking the bar exam, unbeknownst to me, uh, as I was taking the bar exam on July 26, 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act was being signed into law. And so I got to Jackson Lewis with the uh, attorney with the lowest billable rate, and I was signed uh, what at first was a, a curse and certainly soon became a blessing for many, many years of writing or ghostwriting books for senior partners at the firm at the time on this new historic piece of legislation called the ADA. And from there, over time, a few years later, 1993, the FMLA comes into play, gets enacted by President Clinton. And a few years later, we get HIPAA. A few years in the years that follow, you have the development of the ADA and expansion of lots of state law in all these areas. And 2008, Congress passes the ADAAA. So, and here that brings us forward to 2019. And so I've had the, uh, pleasure of practicing law for 29 years and growing up with this area of the law, and particularly the ADA, which is fascinating and evolving and still very much developing. So my practice at Jackson Lewis, in, in 2003, I founded a practice we call our Disability Leave and Health Management Practice Group. Jackson Lewis you know, has 900 attorneys and 60 offices around the country. And I manage that practice nationwide. And it's really, I, th I like to think of it as an integrated disability absence management practice where we really try to assist. Our primary mission is to assist employers in understanding what the law requires in this space of disability leave and health management and to help them operationalize it by putting in place programs that are legally compliant and responsive to their business interests. So that's the overview. So, so you're the type of lawyer that people like where you're trying to help people get compliant. 
Well, I hope so. You know, if necessary, <laughs> you know, one of my one of the uh, the founders of the firm used to have a saying: "If people want to fight, we'll hold their coat." <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> yeah, we try to at least if people are going to go into a war, they know what they're fighting about. And you know, I kind of view my role as a risk management advisor, an educator on what the law is, and through lots of experiential knowledge give them some creative options to operationalize those laws in a way that they think is best for their organization. Definitely. So it, there's a lot of different ways we can go with this podcast. It sounds like with your expertise on so many different areas. And we wanted to kind of focus on the legalities of post-offer testing and employee testing, because it's something that there's you know, tends to be some confusion about, and we wanted to kind of provide that clarity for our listeners and uh, that platform for you. So first off, I'm assuming you're a fan of employee testing. And if you are, what do you find the benefits are and what do you like about employee testing? Yes, I definitely am a fan of physical ability testing when it is done well. And that's a big caveat as I'm sure we'll talk about it, you know, it can be a, a program that can be problematic for employers if it's not done well. But I'm a big fan of physical ability testing and post-office scenarios for companies who have physically demanding jobs. I've been involved in it for about 25 years now, introduced to it by a client of mine who was really pioneering in this area and uh, at a time when the law was developing. So, I've come to see the real value in physical ability testing. I think it has enormous potential for companies, in particular those that have physically demanding jobs. I guess first and foremost, I think every company's goal should be, and this is my bias, trying to get people home in the same physical condition that they arrive at work. My personal view is if you can't make that commitment to your employees, you have to take a hard look in the mirror and question why you're in business. So there are lots of companies in this country that face that challenge every day because they have physically demanding jobs. And I think if you're in that type of an industry, you're looking for tools to help you fulfill that mission of safety and injury prevention. And I think uh, physical ability testing really holds a lot of promise for those companies and the individuals who work for those companies and come to work every day and want to go home to their families in the same way they arrived at work. So it's something that I think is really important. I'm a fan of it. Again, it's complex and we'll talk about those complexities, but it really does have the ability to confirm that the person you're hiring to do a job, which is physically demanding, has the physical ability to do that. To me, it's always been incongruent to try to hire somebody to do a job that they can't physically do. And the question is, how do you get to the end of that equation? And physical ability testing, to me, is the path forward to accomplish it. So that's first and foremost, safety, right? Injury prevention, taking care of your employees who are coming to work to try to take care of you. The second is that I think it can, make, it can help you save a lot of money as a company. So it's a good business proposition for a company you know, first and foremost, it can save you a lot of money in workers' comp cost just by preventing those injuries, something every company wants to do. I'm not a healthcare economist, but I've read enough to suggest that most of a company's healthcare costs come from people who are out of work, on leave, for medical reasons, 
In addition, there are softer costs associated with workplace injuries, lost work time, lost productivity, additional recruitment, additional training. So for all these reasons, I think companies who have physically demanding jobs ought to at least be considering whether physical ability testing is a tool that would help their companies and their employees. So clearly you're a fan of this. And as a lawyer, it's a great, great perspective to have. We at Fit for Work are still running into various Fortune 2000 companies that tell us that post-offer testing is illegal by their legal department. Illegal is what I said there. Do you run into that as well? And what's your opinion on what drives that perspective? And then on top of that, what's the best strategy for persuading those companies so that they can reconsider their views? Well, it's a good question, a good observation. I do run into companies that have that perspective. I think it's because this area of the law is very complex. I find, to tell you the truth, that many regulators in this area don't even understand completely what they are enforcing and why they're enforcing it. The laws that they do, take the ADA, for example, or Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and how how it might apply to physical ability testing. You know, first off, there's no guidance out there by the EEOC or anybody else that says, let's talk about physical ability testing and let's see, let's apply all these different laws to physical ability testing. There's no comprehensive guidance that does that. And one of the reasons is, is because you have to apply a lot of law to it, okay? But it would be a start if there was some more specific guidance and really thoughtful guidance about it. And again, there's some disparities, some fundamental threshold disparities in how Title VII regulates certain employment activities and how the ADA regulates certain employment activities. So that's a a starting point for the confusion. And I do think that this may be hard for non-lawyers to accept But even though the ADA is nearly 30 years old, it is really largely underdeveloped in many ways, and in particular, in application to physical ability testing programs. So I think we're still at somewhat of an infancy or uh, adolescent timeframe in terms of the ADA's development, and as a result, there are not a lot of answers. And I think a lot of companies, you know, understandably want some bright line rules. And if you're in in-house counsel trying to advise your client about whether a particular program is lawful, you know, you're looking for a black and white answer pretty much. In many instances, that's the ideal thing. You can say it's a go or no go. I'm not certain that physical ability testing is really susceptible to that. I think it's more of a gray area because uh, in lots of ways because of the application of the law. So really good lawyers can come at this with different perspectives depending upon what they're trying to accomplish in counseling their clients. That being said, you know, if you can accept that the law is where it is, and accept the risks inherent with the notion that there is no document out there that says you got a good housekeeping stamp of approval if you do A, B, C, and D, okay, then that's where real 
lawyering come, kicks in to say, okay, you know, we can't wait for this law to develop. We got people coming to work. We got to send them home in the same way they came to work. So how can we develop and innovate here in developing programs that we believe w- should be seen by the EEOC and courts as being lawful? And that is something that I think the best companies out there are excited about exploring. And it takes some work, though. It takes some time to educate people about these nuances. I mean, I mentioned the ADA. I mentioned Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. But there's more than that. You know, there's the Age Discrimination Employment Act. There's the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which is an amendment to Title VII. There's the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, GINA. There's the Federal Family Medical Leave Act. Okay, all these things, all these federal laws need to be applied to a physical ability testing program. And that it takes time. And then beyond that, you have state laws, state disability discrimination laws, state privacy laws. And, and, and we have an increasing number of local laws as well. So there's a lot of law here to get your arms around and to integrate so it's a big effort. And if you're talking with a company that is looking for a program that is a turnkey program that they think is just going to be easy to implement without any risk, then, and they don't have the patience to clearly kind of understand the power of the program and the uncertainties that sometimes exist in, that are inherent in the law, I think it's, it's hard to to get companies quickly to embrace it. And that's usually when you get the response that you described. So what's the strategy to persuade those companies that they want or to reconsider that view? Well, first of all, I'm not so certain it's some, anything that we do. I think it's company, it, it, what happens is, is that companies get tired of seeing the same results over and over again. People getting injured, their cost of operation keep increasing. And usually somebody says, we can't keep doing the things we are, the way we're doing them. So give me some answers. Give me some options. And I think that's when companies are prepared to take the time to educate themselves and work with partners who also are educated on the nuances and the complexities of this. And that's when I think some of the magic happens. And so it sounds like from... The perspective is it's not like OSHA, where OSHA has very clear defined black and white, this is first aid, this is what you can and can't apply. So there's no law that says this is how you are to do post-after testing. It's more you have to make sure that you come up with a program that just by understanding all the other laws, so that way you're not doing something that's illegal. So it's like, it's almost as if you're you know, reading an ins- as opposed to reading an instruction book, you're reading guidelines, and you have to kind of create that and make it in compliance. Correct? Yeah, and I would just add one more layer to that, Curtis. It's like I like to say sometimes to clients, you know, you can design the perfect program, but you can fall down in implementing it and administering it. So it's both sides. You have to have a good design and then a good, effective implementation of the program. And that requires a lot of collaboration and good partners, education of your internal stakeholders at a company who are managing or sponsoring the program. So that's the other piece of it as well. 
Sorry for the interruption. A quick break here to ask you a question. As a business, do you need help getting ahead of injuries instead of always cleaning up after them? We at Fit for Work can partner with you to systematically prevent injuries before they even happen. With over 750 sites and 20 years of experience, we have helped countless companies of all shapes and sizes do exactly that. There are four ways that we can help you. On-site early intervention, industrial ergonomics, employee testing, and safety compliance. Go to our website, www.wellworkforce.com and click on the connect with us button to learn more. Back to our interview. You brought up Title VII about how it talks about not discriminating against race, gender, or ethnicity. Now, how is that different than the ADA? Why did they feel the need to come up with two laws that, from my layman's view, both say don't discriminate? So what, what, what's the difference between the two that businesses, especially that businesses need to know? Well, Title VII prohibits discrimination on certain specified classifications, including race, color, religion, national origin, and sex. So, but it doesn't cover disability. It took the ADA to take the principles of equal employment opportunity and non-discrimination that exist in Title VII, those principles, and apply them to the category of people who are disabled. Now, it's important to understand what happened when the ADA was enacted and why it's so historic, why it's so important, and why it's also challenging. If you think about it, a person's race or national origin, for example, is irrelevant to one's ability to do a job. So the way you complied with those laws, with Title VII, principally is that you had policies and procedures and you applied them rigidly across the board. To everybody, regardless of their race, their gender, their ethnicity, their national origin, because those things are irrelevant, and you know, in the person's ability to do a job. So, you know, what happened is that Title VII kind of evolved over time with that underlying bedrock principle that these personal characteristics are ones that are irrelevant to your job qualifications. And from that, we even get this concept of disparate impact, which is unintentional discrimination that emerged in the 70s under Title VII. And that we use, uh, even if somebody didn't you know, consciously try to discriminate against somebody on the basis of their race or national origin or the protected classifications under Title VII, you could have unintentional discrimination because the standard that you use is, tends to exclude people disproportionately in those categories. And we use statistical analysis to identify those disparities, which you know suggest statistically that race or national origin or something is factoring into the decision, not unlike some unconscious bias type of learnings that we are beginning as a society to really come to recognize and, and, and grapple with. So, but that's Title VII presumptions, okay? Someone's race, Someone's gender, someone's ethnicity, national origin should not really be relevant in, in one's ability to do a job. Okay. That also, just before I move on to the ADA, 
manifested itself in certain standards on the disparate impact world of validating certain neutral testing to ensure it wasn't having a disparate impact on people in those categories. And there was something called the Uniform Guidelines and Employee Selection Procedures that kind of spoke to the whole notion of how you ensure that testing is valid. Now, fast forward to 1990. The ADA is passed. Think about a person's disability, whether somebody's a wheelchair user or somebody is hearing impaired or vision impaired, somebody even has a back impairment to something. You can't categorize those disabilities in one way because people with those disabilities may have very significantly varying levels of physical ability. So you can't say we're going to presume that it's irrelevant. It is actually potentially very relevant. And therefore, the disability has to be considered on an individualized basis. We can't categorize or stereotype people based upon the type of disability they have. We can't presume qualifications because they do or do not have a disability. We have to do an individualized assessment, and we also have to consider the individual nuances and requirements of jobs, because you can have the same job in two different companies, and they have, they're performed differently, different essential job functions. And you can have the same job in the same company on different shifts that are performed differently. And all these things get factored into whether somebody is qualified and require an individualized assessment. And then on top of that, under the ADA, we have to consider reasonable accommodations, which may allow people with physical and mental disabilities to overcome the limitations that are posed by those disabilities. So all of this gives discrimination a whole new meaning. Under Title VII, as I said earlier, you avoided discrimination by treating everybody the same way. Under the ADA, if you treat everybody the same way, you're going to discriminate against them. So the ADA says, treat them the same way, but treat them differently through individualized assessment. And that is a major change in employment law and thinking that businesses to this day are still grappling with because it's not intuitive and it requires that you operationalize the law in a very different way. And that becomes really important as you next apply it to something like physical ability testing. You can't necessarily just have a test that is a strict pass-fail cutoff. You have to be prepared to prove that this test is tailored to the essential functions of the job at this company or on this shift, and that you are also prepared when somebody does not meet the testing qualifications due to the disability, due to limitations posed by the disability, that there might be some reasonable accommodation that would allow them to overcome it. So complex stuff and very different on the Title VII than it is under the ADA. So I can see why hiring somebody such as yourself will could drastically be worth it because that initial cost front will help them to clarify. Now, in doing research for this podcast, I had learned about Title I of the ADA and how it drastically changed the landscape for employee hiring practice. Because before that was implemented, there was just some crazy stuff going on. So what, what was some of that crazy stuff and how did Title I change that landscape for 
employee hire practicing? Okay, well, in a lot of ways, but one of the things that I think you're getting at is prior to the uh, Title I of the ADA, which is the employment provisions of the ADA. The ADA was a landmark piece of legislation that included a number of different chapters. Title I relates to private sector employment. Title II uh, relates to the uh, activities of public entities. Title III relates to the business operations of places of public accommodations and commercial facilities, you know, retail stores or something where people go and take advantage of commerce. Title IV related to telecommunications to allow people to take advantage of that. Title V is miscellaneous provisions. So under Title I, the employment provisions, it first and foremost imposed a standard that you can't discriminate against people on the basis of disability, which, as I just discussed, you know, requires that people understand what that means, what discrimination means under the ADA. You have to do an individualized assessment. You have to consider whether they're qualified for the position, meaning that they can perform the essential functions of the job with or without reasonable accommodation. That does not pose an undue hardship. It also included other things related to safety, something called we call the direct threat standard. So if somebody's disability is creating a safety concern, we don't when Congress passed the ADA, they said, we don't want all these uh, paternalistic or maternalistic concerns about people with disabilities getting hurt to keep them out of the workplace. So we're going to impose a pretty high standard called the direct threat standard. So you cannot deny an employment based upon a safety concern unless you can show that the person would pose a direct threat, which means that the condition poses a significant risk of substantial harm that cannot be eliminated or reduced through reasonable accommodation. And the EEOC has these regulations that talk about a number of different factors that need to be considered, including the imminence of the harm and the nature and severity of the harm that would be experienced if there was an injury. So those are all important things. And then that goes to the notion of employment decisions, the standards that you need to apply to make those employment decisions. But in addition to that, under the theory that essentially Congress didn't trust employers too much to get access to people's information about their disabilities, they created a new scheme that regulated an employer's ability to make what we call disability-related inquiries or to conduct medical examinations. And there are rules that are baked in to Title I of the ADA that did not exist before Title I of the ADA that regulate what inquiries employers can make of applicants in the hiring process and the timing that they can make those, as well as what medical examinations and what is a medical examination, what types of practices would be considered a medical examination in both the pre-employment hiring stage, as well as during employment. So those are kind of the threshold things that change. So now, you know, before, basically, it was not unlawful under federal law to ask anybody about whether they had any workers' comp injuries during an interview, or whether they have any disabilities that I can't see, and that might affect your job. Well, the ADA changed all that, you know, and and the big thing in pre-employment is that you can't make those types of inquiries with very limited exceptions unless and until you give what's called a bona fide conditional job offer, 
which means that person has basically passed all the different hurdles, all the different requirements. And the company knows they want to hire them. And the last step is to confirm that they have the physical or mental ability to do that job. So because it's the last step, the ADA basically is designed to say, well, if something changes after that last step, then we know it's about what that person disclosed during the medical examination. And uh, now we're going to scrutinize that. So it makes it a lot cleaner case for the EEOC or plaintiff's lawyers because now they know it can only be one thing. It had to be the medical information and that was learned. And now we're going to really drill down on whether your judgment that the person was not qualified for this position, that you needed to withdraw the conditional offer of employment past the standards that I alluded to before, an individualized assessment as to whether somebody, that person who had a medical condition, were they really able to perform the essential functions of the job with or without a reasonable accommodation? Or was the safety concern that was discovered something that rose to the level of a direct threat? So now it simplifies the case, if you will, because you have it fixed on a period of time that is now very clear for everybody involved that we, we know what we're kind of uh, examining. As I mentioned in the introduction, Frank has so much good information for us that we have split this into two separate episodes. So be on the lookout for the conclusion of our interview with Frank. But what I took away from this first half was when he mentioned that if your priority isn't sending home your workers in the same condition that they came to work in, then you really need to rethink how you are handling things at your place of employment. And that really is a good point is that through this process, it's, it helps you reassess all those steps that go along within whatever your work process is. And one of the things that I, I definitely took away is that while the law is complex, by having somebody like Frank Alvarez who is an expert. He's been there to write these and he's, you know, these laws and been there to be a part of his whole career has been around them. And so while it is complex, it is worth it because of those that return on investment, uh, along with being able to provide that safe working condition for your employees. So really great insights. And we're, as we said, we're very grateful for his time. And we just want to thank you as a listener for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention of Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please email us, podcast at wellworkforce.com with any questions or comments. And remember, prevention improves lives. 